open finance could define the future of financial services. That's why 11FS and Plaid have joined forces creating a report to explore it in greater depth, scrutinizing the lessons learned from open banking and outlining key policy considerations for its implementation. We consider its impact on financial service providers and the potential benefits to consumers. Download the report for free at bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. Hello, everybody. Welcome to FinTech Insider Insights. I'm Sam Mall. On today's show, we want to talk about the underbanked in the U.S. We're going to be discussing what it means to be underbanked, how this issue plays out in the U.S. specifically, and the impact of COVID-19. To help dive into this topic, I'm joined by excellent guests here in the U.S. Returning to FinTech Insider, we have the legendary John Hope Bryant, CEO and Chairman of Operation Hope. John, how have you been? I'm blessed and real blessed to be with you. Thanks for being a light in the wilderness right now. And you've been a great voice, um, man, across so many things. We have a, a health pandemic in the U.S., a cultural and societal pandemic, and you've been a great voice for this. Uh, glad to consider you a friend. Also making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Thea Garin, Senior Director at the Financial Health Network. Hey, Thea, where are you at? In Chicago? I'm in Chicago. Good to be here with you, Sam. Great to have you here. And last but not least, we have Abby Wimimo. He's the co-founder of Asuzu. Welcome to the show, Abby. I'm assuming you're in New York. Correct. I'm in New York City. Um, and, and let's go ahead and talk about um, Asuzu a little bit. You, uh, we had talked earlier, you said that is Nigerian, to, meaning to save, correct? Correct. And so can you just real quickly tell us about the product? We've had John on before. We've had the financial, um, we've had Jen Tesher from the Financial Health Network on before. But what about your product? What specifically do you focus in on? So our product is really divided into two things. Number one, we help people save as a collective. Um, that's the theology of our products. And um, the most important piece of our products is really helping people build their credit scores by reporting alternative data like rental data, um, savings data, and then group savings data. And I have both Thea and John smiling on the Zoom. We'll have links out to those other interviews with Jen, for example, and the, the two uh, episodes where I went to church with John, basically, at his office in Atlanta. Uh, so we'll have those for the links for everybody. But because there's so much we want to cover, let's jump right in. Let's start with, off with some scene setting and, and ask the most basic question. What does it mean to be underbanked? And Thea, I'm going to let you kind of start. How would you define what underbanked is in the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. And Sam, thanks again to you and your team for, for inviting me. Uh, to join this podcast, Abby and John, really great to connect with you too. So what does it mean to be un and underbanked? So unbanked is fairly simple. It's those who do not have a checking or a savings account and conduct all of their financial transactions outside of the formal financial sector. That's about uh, 6.5 of the population, according to the FDIC as of 2017, who were unbanked. Underbanked are those who do have a checking or a savings account, but also use alternative financial services, such as money orders, check cashing, international remittances, payday loans, things of that nature. And as of 2017, again, according to the FDIC, there was approximately 19% of the U.S. population who could be considered underbanked. So, John, you've kind of made this your life mission, um, uh, talking about this this demographic. The U.S. is a developed country. And all four of us just smiled when I said that. Uh, why are there still so many people in the U.S. that don't have access to fun to this financial system? And everybody, now I'm just going to sit down and let John go. Go, John. 
Uh, well, my newest book comes out in, uh, first of all, commend, commendations of what you're doing, my man. I appreciate uh, you, you and your team being a light on the hill. And Abby, I love what you said about uh, about credit scores because there's never been a riot in a 700 credit score neighborhood in all of America's history. Uh, folks with a 700 credit score go shopping. They don't riot. Now, then, some, of course, some cynical person said to me yesterday, oh, yeah, but they were looting at 700 credit score neighborhoods. Well, that's no different than the guy who robs banks. He robs banks because that's where the money is. <laughs> um, uh, but they were it, it was a riot through a neighborhood, not a riot in a neighborhood. Um, the, but conversely, George Floyd, uh, his, the incident that happened to him was over a $20 bill. Um, and we must remember that Dr. King's speech, uh, the the most famous speech and the most famous march to march on Washington, he said, we're here to, we're here to present a check marked non-sufficient funds. That was about money. George Floyd was about money. George Floyd was in a 570 credit score neighborhood when all this went down. Uh, and it literally wouldn't have happened. It literally wouldn't have happened in an 800 credit score neighborhood. Literally wouldn't have happened. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but uh, the, the, and it's not because racism is down in the 800 credit score neighborhood, although I believe it is because as education levels goes up, as competency levels goes up, uh, as exposure goes up, racism and ignorance goes down. It's just, it's, it's, I love math because it doesn't have an opinion. It just is what it is. Um, but as, as, as I was saying um, in, uh, as I said in this book that's coming out in October, Up From Nothing, you have winners, uh, those who have a surviving mindset, a thriving mindset, in a winning mindset. I can look at Thea, I can look at Abby, and I can see a winning mindset. They knew they were winners before they won anything. Uh, most of America is in, a, is in a thriving mindset. That's what makes the middle class what it is. But those in the neighborhoods that George Floyd was in and the neighborhoods where most of the hundred other people who lost their lives at the hands of the police in these incidents were in a surviving mindset. And so you, you, have, you have two worlds, uh, really, Sam. You've got uh, the world that you and I live in, and it's a, and this is class now, not race, right? Because the new color is green. The color of, in the U.S. is currency. Uh, but but in these underserved neighborhoods, and let me just make it real quick and very simple. This started 400 years ago with a reverse transfer of wealth. It's called slavery. Don't don't look at it through a moral lens. Don't look at it through an ethical lens. We all know it's disgusting. Okay, this is economics. How do you build a country for free? The, the, again, I, I unpack this a lot in this new book, but in, in a, the, the, world, the word millionaire, which is one of the top 10 most recognizable word, used words in the world, most, sorry, top, top 10 recognizable word, words in, in the world, that word came from 1850 in New York City with financiers financing the cotton trade. The cotton trade came from the wealthiest city per capita in the world in 1850, which was not just Mississippi. One of the poorest, by the way, in the world today, which was the uh, slave port and the literally the the bay that slaves were onboarded in the Mississippi. It, so, li and literally, the, the more I worked, the bigger somebody else's house got. That was a reverse, reverse transfer of wealth. You go to 1855 with the Freedmen's Bank, and it's interesting that the Freedmen's Bank building, which, as you know, Sam, we we got renamed three years ago in honor of former slaves who put every dime they had in that bank after being a Union soldier, that building was defamed by marchers who didn't know their history. And John, uh, they, you pointed that out immediately on social media. And I want to I yeah. thank you for that. That, that. that hurt. 
Yeah, the only building on the White House Mall in honor of former slaves. And this, we don't have time for this story, so I won't, I won't go into it. But your your viewers can can pull it up. Viewers and listeners can pull it up for themselves. The Freedmen's Bank. Abraham, short version: Abraham Lincoln created a bank in 1865, chartered to teach freed slaves about money. He thought that that 40 acres, which was March, January of 1865, we worked that so hard they gave us a mule in February of 1865. Again, not a handout, a hand up. And then a bank came in March of 1865, and in April, Lincoln was assassinated. But he realized that putting us back into the free enterprise system, putting us into the game and, and, ha- and having us pursue our self-determination, uh, that was a new freedom. After physical freedom, after civil rights, had to be civil rights. And then Lincoln was killed in April. And 100 years later, Dr. King was killed in another April. 100, uh, 100 years, almost to the year later, in Memphis, Tennessee, also pursuing this issue of, of economics. So we never got the memo, Sam, uh, as you know, it's another one of my books. We never got the memo on how free enterprise, capitalism, economics, and money works, which is why I love what Abby's doing and what Thea's talking about. This is the new civil rights issue. The, 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 Andrew Young, my mentor, Ambassador Andrew Young, who was on the right hand of Dr. King and was on that balcony pointing to the shooter in, in 68 when Lincoln was killed, April 4th, I believe, was the date. Dr. Ambassador Young had said this, Dr. Young as well. To live in a system of free enterprise and not to understand the rules of free enterprise must be the very definition of slavery. Man, and I'll tell you, I was born in 66. Same year. It's amazing. Yeah, and John, you think about our life path, right? It's 2020. We're still having these conversations, and it's just – so anyways, I'm, I'm going to I think using MLK words to 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 uh, to jump into this next component but, talking but, about. But Sam, yeah. but Sam, hold on. Here's the inspiring yeah. part. It's not like we gave folks a memo and they screwed it up. Exactly. We just never gave we didn't never we never gave them the memo and we never gave them the tools to succeed. Look at look, look at my poor white friends who rallied, who who really rioted at the ballot box three years ago. They have the same problem, really, that my Indian yep. friends, Native American Indian friends that my black uh, uh, black African friends in Africa, my African-American friends here in America, it's the same issue. We, we threw off colonization in Europe, I mean, in Africa. But, no, we, but we didn't get the memo on money. We didn't know how to run the economy after we got our freedom. So look at Africa now. It's the same story over and over again. So the inspiring part of your program and the inspiring part of what Thea is talking about and Abby is doing is that now it's never too late for change. And now we're finally focusing on the, the 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 issue that must come next you anger is not a plan and frustration is not a strategy <laughs> and, and now abby, yeah and abby you were nodding through that i mean you think about what what you're doing through your company and and who you've been focused on uh, with this so when we talk about the underbank just real quickly and i'll give you the last word on this before we move to the next section um what are what are some of those risk factors that are involved how does geography play a part of this i mean you're in new york Right now, obviously, and you picked New York for a reason. Um, what does that have to? What what impact does that have when we're talking about the underbanked? Right, I, I would like to take a step back, and you know, I think John talked a lot about the history um, of yeah. where we are, which is the symptom of a larger disease. Um, for me, I came to the United States as an immigrant from Nigeria, serendipitously, and how relevant for this conversation, I ended up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, from seventy-eight oh. degree weather. To negative 22 degrees in Minnesota. I know what it feels like to be financially excluded because when my mother and I walked into one of the biggest banks in Minnesota, we went turned away because we didn't have a financial identity, not a credit score. We walked down right. the streets 
a couple miles away from where George Floyd was actually killed in Brooklyn Park to borrow money from a payday loan lender, a predatory lender at 400% interest rates. My mother sold majority of our jewelry, including my father's wedding ring, so I could get a fighting chance and go to the University of Minnesota. It shouldn't be that way. If we are in a prosperous America, where you come from shouldn't determine where you end up. And the, the biggest issue we're facing today to your question is really folks that live in particular neighborhoods due to the legacy of redlining in this country is the symptom of the disease we're dealing with. And my answer is really simple, and it goes back to a bigger quote. We ask no favor of our race. All we ask of our brethren in the United States is to take their feet of our progress, because that's the only way we can reclaim the soul of this country called the United States of America. I just got a chill go down my spine. Say, hey, John, I saw your hand go up. I know you got a comment. You want to throw no, it in no. there? No, I'm just saying amen. I mean, amen. This, is the, yeah. this is the church of what's happening now and what have you done for me lately? And let me, <laughs> let me just say, look, for, for those who are frustrated, please hear me. History doesn't feel historic when you're sitting in it. Yeah. It just feels like another day. But that doesn't mean that what's going on right now is not historic and that you can't make a change. History is not just in the rearview mirror. I mean, Dr. Heaney didn't get up every morning and go, oh, I'm historic. He got up every day and said, no, I need to get the Justice Department into this state. I need to get this judge to get this order. I need to yeah. get this piece of legislation to this congressman. I need to go to this staff meeting. He gave the I have, dream, have a dream speech 100 times before the March on Washington. 2,600 speeches, 6 million miles, 13 years. He just kept pounding it. And that's what we have to do now. So to, I already talked earlier about this. We, we are going through a, a cultural and societal pandemic and, and addressing it. I love that idea of just keep, just keep moving, just keep addressing it and talking about it. And then we throw on top of this a health pandemic. So um, Thea, I'm curious for what you've seen in your organization. When we talk about COVID-19, what, what impact has had this had on individuals, especially around their financial lives? I mean, I know I can speak for myself, but what have you all seen at the Financial um, Health Network? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've been doing a lot of research over the last couple of weeks and months to really try to understand the impact of COVID-19 on the financial health of people in America. And, you know, perhaps unsurprising, we are seeing that although broad swaths of the country are struggling, those in Black communities, those in Latinx communities are struggling much more from both a financial as well as a health perspective. Black Americans, as we've, we've all seen the stats, are far more likely to die, to become infected for, with the disease in the first place and to die from that disease due to a history of um, unequal access to healthcare, uh, et cetera. Latinx communities are losing their jobs at far higher rates than others. Conversely, they're also more likely to be on the front lines of the pandemics, much more likely to be considered essential workers. Uh, and women of color in particular are those who are, who are bearing the brunt uh, of at least the economic portion of the crisis. So in some sense, um, this is, you know, this is a really dire time. It was before the events of the last two weeks. It is even more so now. On the other hand, there is reason for, I would say, cautious optimism in that many more people are paying attention to this issue, not just of, of access to, to the financial services sector, but of the much bigger conversation. Uh, we call it financial health. You can think of it as economic precarity. 
security. You can think of it as the fact that, um, you know, for far too long, um, our society has frankly turned a blind eye as people lived paycheck to paycheck with no financial cushion. So in some cases, there is there is this opportunity or there is a realization that um, this, that, that, that things are untenable to persist as they still are. So, Abby, um, I'm curious. Again, you're in New York. I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, this concept of social distancing is just built into where I live, right? You're in New York, right? I mean, you're in the the epicenter of the crisis that we've seen, and the whole and and New York, to a large degree, has taken that concept of social distancing to heart, right? Um, and I'm, I'm generalizing when I say that. But when you think about social distancing and the impact to the underbanked and underserved, I'm I'm sure that's th- there's a lot to take in there. There's a lot to take in, and you're right. We're at the epicenter of one of the greatest financial and health crises we've ever seen. Um, it's taken just a quick couple weeks to eradicate the gains we had um, in over 10 years. And that gains was not equally distributed amongst particularly um, African-Americans that fundamentally built this nation. So let's focus on New York. New York, it is utterly difficult to social distance and, and we live on top of each other. You can have six people living in, a, in an apartment and then you go out there to fend for yourself. Majority of the people that are hurt, folks living in the Bronx. I live in Harlem. Our office is situated in Harlem. We see a lot of folks trying to line up at the cashier's check um, line just to get access to whatever cash they can get access to. We think about the PPP cash that was allocated by the federal government, the people we serve, over 80% of them are still waiting to get their check because those checks are being mailed. And in most cases, they are actually in a different address. This is some of the biggest hails we're seeing. And when the crisis started, we report rental data into the credit rating agencies to help drive credit scores. One of the things we found working with our landlords was 65% of the low to medium income um, buildings we work in, those folks couldn't pay their rent. We created a fund to, to raise you know, over a quarter million dollars um, to make sure these people are not evicted and we're not solving the issue of financial health backwards or homelessness. And what is sad when we looked at the data, and this is pure data, thousands of it, African-Americans and Latino make 86% of people that ask for help, totaling over $4 million in old rent. This is not right. We need to do better as a society. I'm very proud of what Governor Cuomo has done in terms of you know, making sure folks are indoors and this uh, virus is not spreading. But we need to look at ourselves in a mirror to address the bigger disease we're dealing with in this country, which is systemic inequality. Yeah, and my, my niece lives, uh, she works for de Blasio in the after-school program up there. She lives up in 126th Street oh, when no I way. go we to can, New York. We can definitely yeah, they're, they're neighbors. <laughs> yeah, y'all are neighbors. And she has rode, you know, obviously she's rode this whole thing out up there. She is a, a proud adopted New Yorker from Columbus, Georgia, and loves the city. And I got to say, her neighborhood in Harlem, one, the food is my favorite. I'll just flat out say that's where I stay when I go to York. John, you were giving thumbs up. You were you were high fiving yourself as Abby was talking. Um, I do, and and again, this has been a focus for you for years with Operation Hope and what you've been doing. Let's talk a little bit about the impact on credit. 
coming out of COVID and the impact there and what we're seeing for the underserved and underbanked. I mean, you have an incredible stat around the average credit score, which you've now said every time I get you on because it blows me away. Can you talk about the average credit score compared to, say, I'm generalizing, but uh, somebody who's white and, yeah. I got you. So, look, the before COVID-19, um, 41% of all African Americans, not black, not poor people, not those on welfare, I'm talking about people with suits and ties and advanced degrees. Man. 41% of all African Americans, this will tell you how bad this problem is in this country, had a credit score below 620. That means that effectively, before COVID-19, half of Black America was locked out of the free enterprise system that Thea was talking about. Thea talked about the unbanked, the underbanked, the FDIC stats. FDIC is one of our biggest partners. We help to innovate and create their money smart program for them, um, financial literacy program. Um, but that means that half of black people, suits, ties, salaries, advanced degrees, you can't get a good mortgage below 620. You, you can't get a small business loan unless you're 700 because it's unsecured, risky credit. You, you, you can't get a good credit card, an auto loan. At a 580 credit score, it looks like a bomb. In fact, it's not Mercedes Benz, it's Mercedes payments with a 24% <laughs> interest rate on a car note. Uh, but that's what happens when you're a 570 credit score. And, and so if half of all black people are below uh, 620 effectively before COVID, what do we think it is now? Where half of black people are, are, are unemployed. What do we think it is now? Uh, and by the way, do you think that, that that 620 was the average? No, no. The people who with higher incomes and higher in, in the higher drug that ratio up. So in reality, the probably the average credit score in communities that we're concerned about is probably more like 550. Well, you're just being preyed upon. And now you've got a check casher next to a penny loan lender next to a rental own store next to a title lender next to a liquor store, uh, all preying on people who have low hope and low levels of financial literacy, and as a result, they are low frequency. The credit score, it, let's make matters worse. So, so PPP, which I helped to design the first, the first $350 billion program, I helped to design that, very proud of it. Um, but PPP lacked, because not because it was racist, it wasn't, uh, but because it biased the prepared. So if you have, if 96% of all black businesses, Sam, have no employees, sole proprietors, all right. Okay. We can still get the $10,000. Everybody gets a grant. <laughs> it gets a loan loan. You still get some of the other loans, but the loans for PPP required in employees. Okay. Now blacks don't trust government. Why? Slavery. Blacks don't trust banks. Why? Freedman's Bank. <laughs> so we don't trust government. We don't trust the banks. It's, it's a government program going through the banks and we don't have uh, employees, which means we don't ha we're good at busyness, not the business. So we don't have the business management office. We don't have the income expense statement. We don't have the balance sheet. We don't have an accountant. We think that our banker is a teller at the local branch. It's not, okay? Which means that 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 is what you don't know that you don't know that's killing you, but you think you know. Which means you have you have literally the tale of two cities, the tale of two worlds. And and so uh, and the credit score has just gone up for bankers because they are paranoid that that their credit standards in this environment are, are too low and they don't want bad credit. So the government FHA program just went from 570 to 650. Banks have taken their credit score up. So if you don't do what Abby's talking about and get your credit score up, 
you will be living in a third world environment with regard to access. Uh, the, the, the COVID won't kill you, but your, your wallet might. And, and with that, I'm dropped. I'm done. <laughs> Get in there, Abby. I know you want to comment. And one thing I want to make very clear is John isn't just talking about the crisis and talking about how lazy people are. We need to go back to the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, where the Federal Housing Authority fundamentally discriminated against African-Americans. This were in the deeds. These were the laws of the land and said, we're not going to give you access to home ownership. And what does that do? Today, the average wealth inequality, the white family is worth 10 times more than um, the black family, right? So what we are seeing is a big divide, not because African-Americans and other people of color are lazy and don't want to do well for themselves. It's because we've had systemic and racist laws that have essentially separated people and hindered them from moving forward. So I just wanted that to be very clear in addition to everything John had said. Yeah, and just to add to that, and I'll, I'll use this as a parting comment is before we move into break, George Floyd had two jobs, everybody. Just let me put it out there. And he was working with his, I think it was his girlfriend, on uh, launching uh, an enterprise around ex-cons. Um, let's not vilify, but I'm just going to leave that alone. I just, I just get annoyed at, at different stereotypes get thrown out. No, I, think, um, I think, Sam, what you're trying to say is we are better than the worst things we have ever done. Right? Yes. He is just trying and, to make a living in the United States. There's no reason yeah. why Judge Floyd walking two jobs shouldn't be able to get ahead. Let's ask that question and don't look at yep, his record. Yeah. And I, I mean, I come out of that, and John, you and I have talked about this. I grew up uh, rather uh, um, uh, poor <clears throat> in Detroit um, due to a health situation. My mom had MS. My dad was an iron worker. We went from lower middle class to no class. I think that's a nice way of putting it. We were half a million dollars in debt in the 70s due to a health crisis. Um, I went into the military at 17 because that was it. I was either going to go work in a plant and never get out of Detroit. And my military was my way out for if you are a poor male in the U.S., odds are you're enlisting somewhere in the military. Um, I, I came out mm-hmm. of that. Now, I was I, yeah. I was I benefited from that, got a couple degrees from that and a life experiences. That was great. But um, <laughs> that in itself is a systemic issue that I could do a whole show on. And with that, we really need to move to a break, folks. So we'll be right back after we hear a word from our sponsor. We are truly in uncharted waters. Looking to us for guidance. Nothing is more important than building trust right now. This will be the new normal. How can I help? Hear that? That's the sound of change. Right now, business leaders are rethinking, reassessing, and repurposing business as usual to deal with this new crisis. It's a global conversation Salesforce is having called Leading Through Change. And it's all about businesses working together to achieve one simple goal, help. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Learn more at salesforce.com backslash leading through change. This podcast is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinex.co.uk. This episode of FinTech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, 
Only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and cost. Discover more at MyTechSystems.com. All right, everybody, let's dive back into this discussion, which has already been a barn burner, in my opinion. Let's talk a little bit about the underbanked in the U.S. as far as options, right? Well, we have, we've talked about what the underlying issues have been and how historical they've been. So let's talk about different actions we can take. So this is kind of a twofold question, Thea. Um, kind of who owns the responsibility to get to the underbanked and, and get them into the financial services system? And what options do people in the U.S. have that are, are underbanked? Sure, Sam. And I'm going to suggest that, frankly, it's all of our responsibilities to get folks into the banking system. So at the Financial Health Network, we speak a lot about a wider financial health ecosystem, not comprised just of banks and credit unions and fintechs, but also of policymakers, researchers, as well as those in adjacent sectors, educators, employers, healthcare groups, because the customer is never just a customer. They're an employee, they're a student, they're a patient, they're a parent. They're part of a larger social fabric, and we cannot simply isolate them as a single individual customer. Therefore, it's more than just, I would say, the bank's responsibility. But when we talk about banks' responsibility to get folks into the, you could call the mainstream financial sector, we're not asking them to do this simply from you know, a point of altruism or, or philanthropic motives. Also at the Financial Health Network, we spend a lot of time investing in research that helps us make the business case uh, for financial health, for financial inclusion. So we're about to publish some research, uh, really just in a couple weeks, that shows that customers who believe that their bank is actually helping them improve their financial health are nearly three times more likely to be satisfied with that bank. They're nearly three times more likely to recommend that bank to friends and family, more than twice as likely to continue that relationship, and more than five times as likely to purchase additional products and services from that bank. So again, I can't stress enough that that inclusion is not just about that moral imperative. I would suggest it partly is, but it's also that this is a sound financial business decision, frankly, for the future and on. So, John, she, uh, Thea just set you up incredibly well for Operation Hope. I mean, you partner with some of the largest banks in the country. And, and the approach you take is so unique. But also, it's like, why hasn't anybody else done this? The concept of taking your teams and actually putting them inside of the banks for those people that do get turned away when they're coming in for a loan. Can you talk a little bit about that program? Um, so Operation Hope is uh, the first uh, nonprofit in the history of America to be allowed to operate inside of a bank branch. We have approval from the FFIEC, which is the joint regulatory agencies to operate inside of America's bank, banking system. And this comes after the Rodney King riots of 1992. This was our response after the riots to become the Starbucks of financial inclusion, uh, the Walmart of economic empowerment at scale, which means that in order to be in, we're in 22 states now, 153 locations as America's financial coach. In order to do this, we had to have a business model that was sustainable as a nonprofit because charitable contributions are not enough to sustain paid staff every day, every week. Uh, and we did this by proving that as if we can raise credit scores, which we are doing at 120 points over 24 months and 54 points over six months, if you and when you do that, you're creating customers. Um, and so on the banking side, we're getting the bank out of the no business, Sam, and back into the yes business. Because banks actually, this is a fallacy that banks want to say no. It's a fallacy that banks want to discriminate. No, a stupid banker wants to discriminate, okay? And a stupid banker and a broke banker wants to say no, right? You cannot segregate your heart, integrate your pocket. It doesn't make any sense. 
a banker wants to say yes, but they're lazy also. So they'll say yes to people like you and me because we have great profiles. And, and, and now they're trading you and me with ignoring 100 million uh, emerging market customers, which is what Abby's working on and what I'm working on. So we decided to farm club, not football players or basketball players or soccer players or baseball players, to farm club new American capitalists from the ground up. And we're doing that across America. And we're also working in the workplace, two places you find our people, in schools and the workplace. So we're farm clubbing, work. We're, so we're hoping side for kids, teaching financial literacy in a million kids, 4,000 4, schools, uh, and doing and creating businesses there for young people. And we're doing it, and they open an account, uh, Thea, once we give them a grant to start their business, teaching financial literacy. And we're doing that in the workplace um, because if you can't pay them more, you got to treat them better. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll end there. We just we, this is an, this is what I think Dr. King would be doing if he was alive today. We have four million clients. Uh, we've directed three point five billion dollars in underserved neighborhoods in our history, um, and we've served more people in the last two months, Sam, than we did in half the year of last year. And this time, it's not just black people; it's my rich, well, not, no, my middle class white friends too, because everybody's struggling post COVID nineteen. And, and hey, Abby, I'm curious from your experience, uh, you know, you already talked about, you know, coming over to Minneapolis with your mom and, and you know, your path to New York and what you've been doing. One of the things we're always interested in 11FS, and we're a London-based company, but we're doing work all over the world. We've definitely done some projects in Ghana, for example, and in South Africa around banking. Um, there's, there's lessons that can be lifted from there. You look at what happened with M-Pesa and, um, you know, in Nigeria. So, you know, looking at mobile money, looking at what's happening with Alipay in China, um, are, are there... In, in your opinion, you know, examples that we should take a look at overseas and say, how do we implement them here in the U.S. and making them market specific? Absolutely. So you have a very good question about what are some of the external validities of what we've seen on the African continent and then the crossover in the United States. There's an African saying, if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you fundamentally go together. And it goes back to what Thea talked about. And, you know, we love the financial health network. Jen is amazing. The research is impeccable. And it also goes back to what John talked about, um, that you, we need to democratize access to financial institutions. So let's take a step back and go back to the century-old way of saving, which is one of the things we do at ASUSU. At ASUSU, we bring groups of people together to come as a collective and then save and distribute that capital. And then if we're successful, we can report those obligations as debt obligations into the credit rating agencies so people are able to save, amass capital, and then improve their credit scores. The concept is simple. But our, our, our visual sketchpad, our mindset in the United States is very individualistic, where we want to save a loan. So if there's something like a COVID-19, how can we move together as a collective? We talk about we are all in this together until we talk about our money. We talk about, you know, let's make sure we tackle the issues of corona, the, the racial wealth divide until it's time to talk about balancing your budget at home. We, heck, we can't even do it well in the United States and has flown up to our federal government. So what we need to do is really simple. We, we are not the end all be all in the United States. We are the nation of immigrants. Let's garner lessons learned from the century-old ideas of banking, like the collective approach of ISUSU, 
and democratize it. And one other thing I'll touch on, particularly on whose role it is to heal the divide of where we find ourselves today. When we think about the economic injustice going on in the United States, I'm very, very clear to talk about the facts and really quoting Brian Stevenson here. The opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. And that's what we need to think about. The justice for all the African-Americans we've left behind for 400 years. The justice for all the rulings of Dred Scott. The justice for Jim Crow. The justice for what the Federal Housing Authority did. The justice for what happens in the financial 2008 financial crisis, whereby we sold and packed wicked mortgages and, and, um, and bet against the livelihood of people. That is what the United States should do. And once the United States, this country, our government, set that record straight, then we pick up the baton and live and latch on to the American dream. That's what we should do. So, so Thea, um, my producer, I, I, I love our, my producer team in London. Um, one of the things I were saying is when you look at the Financial Health Network, one of the things that y'all do are the studies that you do, the stats that you produce that both John and Abby have been quoting um, and that we quote all the time. So that is one of the specific areas that y'all excel in um, and, and the partnerships that you do. One of the things I'm curious about when we talk about the underbanked and underserved, and especially with COVID coming on, um, do you see the, this as an opportunity for fintechs like like Abby's, you know, to come in and and provide solutions, right? I mean, um, you're you know you're, you're based out of Chicago. The, the fintech scene in Chicago is ridiculously good. Uh, Abby, no offense, New York's great, but there's other parts of the country. Atlanta's <laughs> fintech scene, I love. Here in Jacks, for God's sakes, it's pretty good. Um, are, are there any companies in particular that you've looked at and gone, all right, that's pretty cool, good solutions? Because when we talk about neobanks coming over to the U.S., you got Chime that's homegrown, you got Money Lion, uh, um, Aspiration. Now we got Monzo over, you know, coming over and Starling and others. Do you think there's an opportunity there to help fill some of the gaps? I definitely do. You know, it's unfortunate that a global pandemic is what it took to really wake <laughs> you know folks up to uh, to the challenges that so many Americans experience. But I do think it did. Um, you know, we you alluded to our research work. We also uh, do some policy work, and we have done a lot of work over the years in seeding innovation to startups. So for the last five years, uh, with support from J.P. Morgan Chase, we've run an, an accelerator where we've invested in dozens of startups at this time. Um, I would encourage folks, I would say many of the startups we've invested in, the fintech startups, are tackling these challenges. One of my all-time favorites that happens to be based in New York is a group called Propel. And Propel offers, they, they've essentially digitized the EBT or the food stamp experience. Prior to Propel, folks on food stamps had to call you know, a phone, a line to get their balance information. That's now all online. Propel offers budgeting tools. And in the last couple of months, they've actually shifted gears uh, and are starting to issue direct uh, cash payments to help uh, folks cope with with the job loss from COVID-19. So they're one of my all-time favorite groups. There's others uh, that we have partnered with over the years, a group called Self that offers some of these secured loans uh, to help folks build a digital uh, a credit identity to um, move away from becoming credit invisible. So I think there's a lot of innovation out there, um, but I, I want to see more, right? I, I You know, you think of the... Uh, you know, the, the Bay Area, um, you know, man in his garage designing solutions that he, you know, responds to his particular life. I think there's a massive opportunity to go beyond 
um, that type of those type of solutions to those that actually make a difference in, in real people's lives through some of the ways that I've explained. And man, I th- I'm glad you talked about some of those programs. I'm going to throw the last word out in this section before we move on. But facts matter. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, data that was just posted uh, today. Welfare recipients by race, food stamps or SNAP, 36.2% white, 25.6% black. These are pure numbers. These aren't break down by what percentage you make up of the population in the U.S. WIC, 58.6% white, 20.7% black. Public housing, 32% white, 45% black, Abby, to your point earlier. And Medicaid, 40% white, 21% black. John, this, yeah. this, I, I, you, you say this all the time, right? Um, uh, money's green. <laughs> you the, know, the biggest, I mean, the, biggest the, the biggest recipient of transfer payments in the history of America are my white friends. And th- then and today, it's called farm subsidies. And, 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 and even my rich white friends now know what affirmative action is. It's called the CARE Act and the PPP <laughs> yeah. loans. We, we've seen it, though. I mean, you, I mean I'm gonna, it, I, we've seen this. The, the large banks, the number of depo- they're good partners. Abby, we love them. losing it. <laughs> Yeah, but it's true. I mean, we've seen a, a transfer of wealth take place in 2020, where the bottom line, those that have done well are doing great. Those that actually own stock are doing great. If you think that reflects the actual situation on the ground, move on. And my producers are telling me if I don't get moving on, they're going to get on my case. So uh, last section, let's talk about looking forward, action, right? What can we do? So what needs to change so more people don't fall through the cracks? So is regulation an answer, Thea? Regulation is definitely going to be part of the answer. Um, Certainly, there's an opportunity for policymakers and regulators to promote regulations that enhance financial health outcomes rather than, um, you know, incentivize financial institutions to charge fees, regulating the small dollar credit market, some of those exorbitant payday loans that both Abby and John spoke about, certainly part of the equation. Um, And lately, we've seen some more, you could call them radical proposals for things like public banking, postal banking, um, you know, uh, universal retirement accounts, baby bonds, things of that nature, which frankly are only radical in the United States. They're, they're not radical anywhere else in, in the world. Um, but those, I would say, are, are definitely part of the solutions that uh, warrant further, further exploration, given that so the, the piecemeal approach to regulation hasn't, hasn't quite worked up until this point. All right, Abby, your final word. One or two things that you would say, let's do this now, besides community, which, by the way, I could hug you for saying that. It is community. It's just not the politicians in D.C. or in your city or your state. This is us as a, as a country, a culture and society. So one or two things from you. Two things from me. Number one, we need to have a loan loss reserve fund, um, $100 billion loan loss reserve fund. And what that means is a guarantee for financial institutions that are scared of lending to folks that they don't feel comfortable with from a credit risk standpoint. The government should step in place and create a $100 billion loan loss reserve fund. CDFIs can lend, financial institutions can lend, and you make it a mandate to get access to capital to folks that need it. That's number one. Number two, we need to make sure we have a landmark legislation and alternative um, credit identities. Uh, right now, the credit score is our almighty financial identity, but we're not allowed to, or that institutions are not recognizing at scale a lot of factors, like rental data is not fully democratized. We're one of the biggest players in the country doing that right now. 
We need government funding to democratize it to federal housing authorities. And then the last thing is the biggest driver of wealth in the United States is home ownership. It is time for the federal government to come and invest in folks they've left behind, African-Americans and left out, and give them a fighting chance by creating a landmark $1.2 trillion deal so they can right the wrong of the past. Those are the three concrete things I'm here to offer. Abby, you just set John Hope up better than anyone I've ever seen. Hey, John, you got something called Promise Homes. I'll let you kind of, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about Promise Homes and give you that out. uh, So Promise Homes is the largest owner of single family homes in America by a minority. So I'm the owner of it. It's a $100 million uh, company for profit. And we're using our nonprofit strategies to show that you can treat people decently, be a capitalist and not be a jerk. So, but that's a, but that's an aside. I'm going to grow that to a billion dollars company, but that's an aside. I really believe in the new Marshall Plan, and I'm going to ask everybody just to go to the Milken Institute, pull down the new market plan that I drafted, and we published. They published last week. I think it speaks to a lot of what you all have said today. I'm, uh, I think that because that maybe we're on the right track. There's some traction with the White House and with pri- private sector leaders for a potentially twenty billion dollar package here. That in the myth that we, we have a, ch- a shot to get this done legislatively and institutionalized. And I need for both of you to make sure that I'm being an honest broker and that I'm in- incorporating the best of your great ideas. But but that is education for all, K through college, not K through high school. You cannot have a nation that's a leader of the free world with half of our people who have a high school education. That's where bias and race, racism, discrimination comes from, ignorance and lack of exposure in large part. K through college, financial literacy for all. Um, uh, home ownership for all is part of that, Abby. Um, uh, a living wage for all. And, and you do that through taking the earning income tax credit and, and making this a burden of moving wages up, not of the business, because half of us are employed by small businesses, not their burden. They can't handle it. It's a burden for all Americans who share that cost because we all benefit from it. Because all you can do is take that money and put it back in the economy anyway. So you can give everybody a bonus like on Wall Street of 25% a year. And it's the first raise for the average American since you know, after World War II, after the 70s, that would change, take a lot of tension off. Because a lot of the tension is out there, Sam, is economic tension. Um, and so those are just some of the proposals in the new Marshall Plan. Download it, look at it, and tell me what we can do better. All right, folks, if you're not inspired coming out of this show, um, I don't know why you're listening to our podcast. Um, that has to wrap it up today. I want to thank every single one of our guests. So where's the best place to find out more about you and your companies? John, let's start with you. OperationHope.org, uh, or go to our, our app, which is Hope in Hand, on the Android and the Apple Store. Abby? You can find us at AsusuRent.com. And we will push that link out. And Thea? I'm available at tgarren at FinHealthNetwork.org, and our website is FinHealthNetwork.org. As for me, it's at Sam All on Twitter, uh, Sam All on LinkedIn. Um, probably Sam all on Pinterest. I don't know. I haven't looked in a while. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make the show better and it helps others find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves FinTech who isn't listening to FinTech Insider, pass the pod along and tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or email podcast at 11FS.com. To all my guests, thank you for being here. Everyone else, thanks for joining us.